You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston and this is The Bike Show. On uh, this week's show, we are picking up from where the show left off at the end of last week's show, which is somewhere along the route of uh, my ride from London to Bristol. If you remember, the idea of the ride was to um, follow along a route that would be mostly determined by listeners to the bike show who would be guiding me along in a kind of relay of guides. And um, we pick up the journey very early on the second day. I'm standing on the Ridgeway, which is a chalk escarpment that runs west to east on the north edge of Wessex. And I've got the most sublime view over the Vale of White Horse. In the west, I can see the power stations at Didcot, the cooling towers silhouetted in the distance. And then it opens up into woods, fields of wheat. There's a quite a large flock of sheep grazing in front of me. And over in the distance, I can see Wantage, which is uh, my morning destination. Last night was spent a little further back, um, also up on the ridgeway, with a stunning view. Very comfortable night in the tent. Pete appeared to be comfortable in his hammock. Uh, it was a little chilly, and there was a heavy dew. But the day today is absolutely perfect. There is nothing in the sky but the sun, a few vapour trails of aeroplanes and just blue, 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 blue as far as can be seen. Summertime is with us once again Flowers bloom and everywhere again and the cold days of winter are behind us now And the springtime promises all come true Trees and grass and bushes green again The sky's so blue I don't remember where The cold of winter took the sun away But the springtime promises all came true It's summertime now so please don't throw it away I've spent the past morning cycling along the northern side of the Ridgeway through a series of absolutely picture postcard perfect villages that would not look at all out of place in uh, Miss Marple TV adaptation. But now, like a bolt out of the blue, I'm crossing the M4 and uh, you can hear it. This is the motorway which heads west out of London. If I were to get on this in a car, I'd be in Bristol probably within the hour. But instead, I'm going to take 
another 24 hours at least before I um, get to Bristol. And along the way, I'm going to be um, mounting up on the Ridgeway again and cycling along that to Avebury, the stone circles at Avebury, where I have a rendezvous with the uh, highway cycling group, all one of it. And um, from there, the route is uncertain, but um, I'm going to see what David of the highway cycling group is going to come up with but I'm hoping um, a, a slightly mystical journey uh, through some of the um, places which have a long history and um, associations with um, magic, ley lines, unexplained historical phenomena and peoples who uh, have long since left the planet and taken their cultures and practices with them. So. It's time to leave behind the horrors of the M4. I don't know if you can hear me above the din. It's really terrible sitting up here on this bridge, but um, you know, it's occasionally good to have a reminder of um, what the world is like elsewhere when you're not tootling along the English country lanes. They're welcome to it. The sound of the M4 is but a distant memory as I've um, regained the Ridgeway, uh, the old Ridgeway track which is a unsurfaced road um, with stunning views um, over the countryside here and to guide me for the next section is David of the uh, Highway Cycling Group. Hello there. Hello. Welcome to this journey. Uh, you've already been on the road for a few hours, so uh, uh, thanks for coming so far. Yeah, I've been on the road since eight, uh, 30 odd miles, I think now. So tell me about the Highway Cycling Group. The Highway Cycling Group was set up when I was, I suppose, an early teenager uh, by my father, who, uh, the late David Evans, who particularly enjoyed setting up small groups and clubs, and he loved cycling. And the whole kind of joke of the Highway Cycling Group is that there was about three of us kind of in it. Um, but we had a club badge, we had a club jersey uh, made by C&A, and um, we used to go out on these kind of family rides, which were very carefully organised, and uh, just cycle around, family cycling, just really enjoying being out together, being out on bikes, really. And do you think actually christening it with a club title made it feel different, slightly, uh, slightly official in, the, in your young mind? Absolutely. It certainly added a kind of officious air to it. And, uh, you know, I don't recall any actual official club meetings or rules or anything like that, but they gradually kind of became unspoken things about, you know, it was all right to, it was okay to, to get off and walk every once in a while. And, uh, you know, shops had to be stopped at and uh, drinks had to be consumed. And so we're standing in a, a cop's of trees i guess that is that what it's called yeah i mean this is we're at the top of Hackpen hill just off the ridgeway uh and this is a copse of trees that was planted in the 18th century by uh, a landowner who wanted to kind of beautify the starkness of the, the ridgeway by adding a copse of trees and the reason we've stopped here actually is because this is where some of my father's ashes are scattered because uh as the founder of the highway cycling group this was a spot that he particularly loved um, because I think from this spot you can kind of see the whole of the kind of domain of the highway cycling group and you can see the whole landscape which fascinated my father and has continued to fascinate me as well. And, and I should just add that it's that the highway cycling group is named not after 
highways as in roads but actually after a, a village yeah it's after a very small well not even a village really just a hamlet a collection of kind of four or five houses uh, and a couple of farms in wiltshire somewhere between compton bassett and um and hill martin um, i can see ahead the vista has changed because i've been coming along with the views over didcot power station and then the vale of white horse up towards um, oxford then a glimpse of the uh, the swindon outskirts and I can see a kind of a westward vista opening up that, that I guess must mark the lower reaches of the Ridgeway. I mean, where are we going? Yeah, I mean, we're heading now towards what would have been, I suppose, a sacred landscape back in ancient times. I mean, the Ridgeway itself, some people think, started off as a migratory route for animals in prehistoric times, which uh, ancient people would have followed because as hunter-gatherers it would have been where their, their food kind of went. And then perhaps this marked the place where in Britain they first kind of settled as farmers and it changed from that hunter-gathering uh, place to kind of agriculture. So what we're going to move into is this kind of strange sacred landscape, this sort of tension between the hunter-gatherers and the agriculture. And it became a very sacred space and they built these huge kind of monuments. I mean, you can't ride or walk along here without stumbling over some quite incredible Neolithic and megalithic monuments okay next stop Avebury we've come down off the ridgeway and we're now standing on the uh, edge of this very large stone circle at Avebury so David what's the deal here as you say, we're standing in the centre, right slap bang in the centre of Avebury Stone Circle is Avebury Village itself, which the majority of the houses are made up from smashing up the stones back in the 18th century and, and kind of further back. So as well, you can see the scale of the, the stone circle, but you can also see these kind of rather sad concrete posts that have been put in to mark where one of the stones was torn down and smashed up and, and made into, well, we can see some walls and houses from here that are quite clearly made of nicked stone. So how big is the circle? The circle, I'm, well, I'm no good with distances, but I reckon it's probably about half a mile in uh, diameter across. It's pretty big. I mean, I think it's, it's the biggest stone circle in Britain, really. And these stones are kind of basically vertical, but in a very mm. approximate way. They're not that kind of carved into a perfect shape like at Stonehenge they're mm, they're, they're a bit more right. rough and ready yeah. is, is that because this dates from earlier and they weren't into that kind yeah, of uh, technique Stonehenge was kind of built roughly the same time but not in its kind of current form that we see today that was a much later more modern addition um, Stonehenge was a much smaller monument much the same as this um, in terms of having these rough hewn stones which if they were worked at all were done quite rudimentarily and these were found on uh, on the actual Marlborough Downs not too far away from here and a lot of them come from a place called the Mother's Jam um, which probably to the ancients seemed like these stones were just kind of pouring out of the earth and being left there for them to use so they obviously had some significance so they yanked them down here dug this huge ditch and built these ramparts around the outside and arrange them in not just one circle on the outside but there's actually a couple of other circles and what used to be a kind of giant um, sort of huge stone right in the middle of it which is no longer there anymore and people are wandering around it's a still a beautiful sunny day and we've got the company of a small flock of are these Jacob's sheep? I'm not. I don't. I don't know my sheep black that sheep. well. There's a kind of black sheep with with horns. If you were if you were a white sheep, you would be the black sheep of this flock because yeah, they are all black. They're all uh, black. 
And there's, there's one, hang on, there, there's a white sheep over there, clearly. Yeah. An outsider. So a little bit further up as we kind of come up onto the bank at the top, we should be able to see the, uh, the magnificent Silbury Hill, which is um, Europe's kind of largest man-made hill, particularly from this area, the, the kind of Neolithic, megalithic period. And we'll also be able to see the, what remains of the avenue of stones which led up to a smaller stone circle called the Sanctuary. I mean, the thing is with Stonehenge, unless you look at a map, you can't really tell that it's part of a much larger complex. It's got like these tumuli around it. But at Avebury, once you get up onto anywhere uh, of height around Avebury, you can see that you're standing in the middle of something that was very well thought out, planned and built up over a very long period of time over a large area. And do you know anything about the significance? Uh, I think there are some alignments. I mean, it's all very tempting. I mean, the thing is, what's lovely about humanity is that where there's a bit of a vacuum in our knowledge, we like to, we always like to fill it with something. It's not enough to kind of say, we just don't know at all. And we, we really don't know at all. But, I mean, it, it had ritual significance that much is definitely... You can kind of... It's uh, not a dwelling place or a functional place. No, it's not I a don't fort. think so. It's, it's, a... not, it's not really... With the, uh, with the kind of flat area in the middle... These wouldn't have been very good for uh, uh, as a fortification. You know, it would be very hard to defend. Once the people were over, that was it. it. Was all you know? Once they got over that outer ditch, it would all be over. So you can pretty safely say it's kind of ritual significance. I mean, the nice thing about this is you can get right up close to the stones mm. and touch them. And there's a kid over there who looks like he's doing a bit of uh, bouldering, a bit of rock climbing go, yeah. practice, kind of scale that one. Because I remember as a child being able to get right up close to Stonehenge and clamber about on Stonehenge and now you can only do that at the solstices but yeah you, you can come any time of the year to Avebury and um, touch the stones feel their healing powers if they've mm. got healing powers or or just having a feeling of um, being in touch with something that has a whiff of eternity about it yeah and it's worth remembering that the people who put this up were we're actually closer to the, the to the time of christ to the year naught as it were than they are by a thousand years so this this was three thousand years old at, at, at the year zero that, that's worth remembering these things are really really old and you know this is one of the few places when you get up on the ridgeway and you look around where you're really in contact with however fleetingly and however many questions it raises a kind of ancient part of, of Great Britain really and do you feel that connection you know when you're riding around here at night or, or at dusk and the gloaming and you yeah. see do you see things that aren't really there <laughs> or do you do? I, I wouldn't go as far as that but there's certainly a kind of liminal feeling to it I mean the Ridgeway itself is a sort of liminal area there's that feeling that you're on a sort of threshold that you're not that far away from from understanding just a bit more about it and the bicycle I think is a perfectly designed vehicle for that you're sort of putting yourself into a, a state of fugue if you like where you almost can't take on everything it's it's a total immersion device and that's one of the things that I really love about it it's not like being in a car where you can lock yourself out from the environment when you're on a bike you can feel everything around you and you can see everything you can even feel your passage through the air you can feel what it feels like to move uh, against the actual what feels like very still air and if we were to go 14 miles an hour on our bike it would be roaring in our ears that's the, the power of the bicycle it puts you into the world in a way that no other kind of means of transport really does and it is a total immersion um, kind of way of traveling and i think this landscape here in particular demands total immersion well there's a rather charming scene we've come upon here 
a couple of long-horned, long-haired bovines. Are they highland cattle, do you think? I, I don't know enough about cows. And they've got fantastic sort of brushed-down mm. fringes and, and long blonde hair. And they are sitting here under a horse chestnut tree, which is in... Um, in bloom. One of them's lying down, just having a rest, and the other one's kind of preening yeah. um, his or her friend. It's also very Arcadian. Um, it is, and you may be able to hear the rasp of the, uh, of the tongue on the, on the shoulders and the flank of, uh, of this one that's having the, uh, the spa treatment. I don't know if I can uh, pick up that with the microphone. I don't want to get too close. Mm. I'm standing very safely behind a fence here because these horns are made for goring, aren't they? I mean, they are enormous. And what's yeah. the the one on the one that's sitting down? I wonder if they're a couple because one of them looks rather bigger than the other one. Yeah. Or, well, or they, maybe well, they're. It was clearly the sort of alpha cow or alpha bovine. Yeah, or it's a family. Yeah. Um, but its horns are, I would say, five feet tip to tip. I, I would definitely go along with that. Yeah. The other one's a little bit more mm. curled up. It's got a sort of back, more of a strong backward curve on the on the liquor. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a bit like an up upside down rondoner mm. um, handlebars, where yeah. the other one's more like well, it's not really like handlebars at all. No, I mean it's sort of like a or a cruiser. A, yeah, maybe a kind of a, a cru- Schwinn cruiser reject. A kind of bars, Schwinn yeah. sort of or or one of those yeah low rider mm. bikes, but um, you can probably hear the birds, and we are surrounded by sound. On this um, on this bike ride, we, yeah, we've taken a more Arcadian route than the main road between Avebury and Carn, so we've slipped in behind Yatesbury uh, along a, a Sustrans recommended route, I think, and uh, just taken an, an opportunity to to soak in some sound and uh, and the shade as well. Well, as the sun enters its final phase before going over the horizon. I think this is what photographers refer to as the golden hour. Isn't that right, yeah, David? Yeah. We're, not, we're not quite in the dusk yet. We're sort of... Yeah, we've got some way to go before into the gloaming. Yeah. But I can feel, still feel a bit of warmth coming off the sun, but it's, mm. the shadows have started to lengthen and we are cycling along a rather nice former canal towpath Going, was it south from Chippenham yep. towards Laycock? Towards and I guess we're about two miles, maybe two and a half miles from Laycock now. And so the, the um, canal is in a bit of a sorry state. Mm. Uh, it's been filled up with silt and vegetation. There's not much water in there, but it's rather beautiful, actually. Um, full of buttercups and irises. irises. Beautiful yellow irises there. And some other flowers that I don't know, but they're just sort of like hanging bells down from them the kind of oh, purple hanging purple and white hanging bells yeah very nice we've had a little bit of a puncture fest this afternoon <laughs> david managed to get four punctures four holes in one inner tube in one moment yeah which is pretty spectacular yeah i think it was one of my finest achievements uh, as a cyclist as a cyclist well i think just generally as, <laughs> as a whole and that was coming down from Green Lane into Avebury itself, uh, off the ridgeway. It was a very flinty, uh, chalky track, quite steep. And then uh, you punctured 
between Avebury and Yatesbury. Yeah, on what was a rather rough Sustrans designated cycle route, which I wouldn't send anyone down there unless they were being paid in, to do it. But this one's a bit better. It's sort of paved in parts mm -hmm. and uh, pretty nice. There's another, another puncture uh, just after Black Dog Holt on the little bit of cycle path between Carn and Chippenham. Uh, that was me again making that five. And uh, we're out of tubes now, are we? We are out of um, fresh tubes. Got quite a lot of patches left. Yeah. So, do you think this area is particularly well served by these kind of post industrial cycle routes? Because we've been on a, well, we're on a canal, disused canal towpath now, and mm. we've, we're on a railway line before because yeah. this area was you know the workshop of England or one of the workshops of England back in the day wasn't it? Yeah it certainly was I mean right up till the 19 uh, the kind of middle of the century really there were still there were tanks being built here during the war and the infrastructure was still supporting that you know things were still going out to Bristol to London um, I mean it's still on a main line but I think Dr Beeching's axe put an end to the railways which ironically had already put an end to the canal so suddenly you've got all this these disused routes quite nice and flat yeah not bad at all actually not bad at all i'm inside my tent now i uh, said goodbye to david he headed off south back home to road and um, I decided to stay for the night here in Laycock and um, it's a nice warm night the stars are out and there's a crescent moon which is casting shadows over the field that I'm camped in I'm by the edge of the Avon which here in Laycock is a pretty uh, small river it's not much more than a stream we did have a swim in it at the end of our ride and um, I'm camped in a field overlooking the river and beyond the river, just beyond the river, is Laycock Abbey which is a rather magnificent house, um, most famous probably as uh, the place where photography was discovered or invented by Henry Fox Talbot. In fact, I've got a clear line of sight up to the turreted room where he had his studio and uh, made his first discoveries of photography. Lake or Cabby's more recently become famous as the uh, set or the location for the Harry Potter movies. Not that I've seen any of them, so that might give you an idea of what it looks like if you're familiar with those films. The trees are rustling in the wind overhead. There's a little grove of trees where I am. It's not strictly speaking a legal campsite, but I pitched pretty late and uh, it's now very dark. And My tent is a very good dark green color, so I'm hoping that um, I won't be spotted and I'm sure I'll strike camp pretty early tomorrow morning which is Sunday morning and um, 
quite a mellow ride awaits me into Bristol. Well, it's been an absolutely wonderful day, one of the finest days cycling in England or anywhere that I can remember. And um, this is quite a perfect end to it. So I'm gonna nestle down and get some sleep. Good night. My journey to Bristol is in its last lap, I suppose the finishing straight and some would say that I've left the best till last because at Bath, having ridden along the uh, Avon more or less on lanes and towpath, I've picked up the railway path to Bristol which is about 17 miles long and beautifully surfaced road well not road exactly cycle track along the side of um, a railway an old railway and to guide me back to his home in Bristol is old and a very good friend of mine and also a very good friend of the bike show by now Daniel Start we stopped at Avon Cliff for a bit of swimming which is just downstream of Bradford upon Avon home of course of Alex Moulton and his bicycles that was pretty nice. A, a, good, a good weir spot. The weirs seem to be purpose-built for um, wild swimming. Well, they're, they're fantastic for a bit of a re recreational um, cooling off after a, uh, a fast cycle ride. And every weir has a, a cascade you can sort of play under and then you can dive in off the wall into sort of the deep pool and there's usually a rope swing. Um, so we've had a bit of our picnic at each weir pool and it's, it's been a bit of a sort of connoisseur's dipping along the Avon bike trail. Yeah, and what was the next one? That was There were loads of people there. I mean, it was just an idyllic spot with a train coming past. Yeah, Wally Weir is very famous just on the east side of Bath. There was, must have been 100 people on the, in, the, in the meadows there. I think everyone sort of come out after two terrible summers. So you've got a new wild swimming book coming out. Is this going to be the summer that the last two summers have not really been? Absolutely, this is it. This is, this is it. We're going to become aquatic now. The summer is with us. It's really nice. We're riding west into a setting sun, which kind of makes it a little bit hard to see, but you get these kinds of flashes as the sun 
burst through the trees, so the sort of dappled light from the trees, and you get these flashes where you go blind, basically, and then it kind of, your field of vision goes orange and purple and green. It's quite uh, psychedelic, actually. <laughs> quite psychedelic. Cyclodelic? Cyclodelic. That's exactly what it is. It's cyclodelic. God damn it. Nine miles to go, and about... I don't know, how much sun is that? That's about, I would say, a, 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 I can, a sort of palm's width of 40, sun. 45 minutes. <laughs> a palm's width of sun. 45 minutes. And then an hour so of dust. Nine, nine miles. I think we can uh, probably carve a few off that. <laughs> carve a few what? A few miles off the, because uh, the, the, the route takes a very long route in over the north of Bristol, so we wanted to go straight to the centre. Okay. That might be a bit of a cheat. Okay, well that's alright, don't matter. As long as we get to Bristol, I'm not complaining. What's your name? Uh, AD. AD? Yeah. From Bristol? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I live in Bristol. You live in Bristol? Yeah, but I'm from Essex originally. And so, where are you playing now? Well, I mean, what's just this, here. What's this, uh, this is just Picton Street. And how would you describe your music? Uh, folk and reggae. listeners um, you're in for a little bit of a surprise because the uh, show is going to be extended for another uh, 20 minutes or so Um, half an hour was uh, all there was on the radio show this week which got us to the outskirts of Bristol but I didn't think it was fair um, on the podcast listeners for whom there is no time limit to the uh, duration of the show to leave you um, hungry waiting at the gates of uh, the mighty city of Bristol to find out what happened to me when I um, got in. So what follows from now is a extended version of the show that is just for the podcast. You should not fight against your brother. We must not fight against our sister. You should not fight against our father. I say we must not fight against our So I'm now having a very enjoyable uh, sit-down and a cup of coffee overlooking the um, Dockland area of Bristol, down in the heart of the city. And I'm joined by 
um, Mike Macbeth and Matthew Simmons, um, the latter who is chair of the Bristol Bike Forum, and both enthusiastic Bristol cyclists. What is this building here? It's called the Mud Dock. Um, but um, Mike, what, what is it? Uh, it's a cycle works, a cycle shop and a cafe. Uh, it started out as a cafe stroke cycle shop, but uh, applied for some funding from the local authority and the European Union to create a, a, a thing called a cycle hub where there are changing rooms and showers, uh, a workshop, and commuters use it to drop off their bikes in the morning, get any running repairs done, have a shower, get changed, dry off if it's been raining, go off to work, collect their bikes in the evening. So it's quite close to the city centre and also to the main railway station. So it's ideally uh, located. And it's gone from strength to strength over the last... um, Five or six years, I would say. It's a what is it? A kind of wharf building or an old dockside building? I don't know what, do you know what yeah, the history of the building is? I think it was literally a, a mud dock where they used to bring the boats, which they used to dredge the floating harbour um, for mud to stop it um, silting up. So hence the name stuck, and it was what it says it was. <laughs> I mean, it's really impressive, isn't it? Because normally cycling-oriented facilities, certainly in my experience, are a bit a bit shabby. You know, and you know we kind of enjoy the shabbiness don't we of cycling <laughs> yes. but this is this is deluxe isn't it i mean you've got two or three stories of of gleaming carbon and titanium and then on top you've got this quite nice cafe with a with a with a huge deck and the most sublime view out over over the water with all the nice boats and is this the main dock area would this been the main dock area of bristol in the bygone era yeah if you'd come here 20 or 30 years ago there would have been um uh, ships all the way along, you know, unloading cargoes. I mean, as the ships got bigger, they had to move out to Portbury, so the the docks got quieter. But now they're used for leisure, for pastimes, for cycling round, for sailing along the water, for having a nice coffee like this. But this is definitely the trendy end of cycling in Bristol, the mud dock. And Bristol, I guess, owes its history to trade and overseas trade. A slightly shameful history one element of it being yes. the sugar and slaves and things yes. like that i mean could you, are you yes. local historians yeah <laughs> bristol's a fine 18th century city and in a sense that's been to its advantage and to its disadvantage in 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 many respects so uh, it grew very prosperous uh, on international trade but because we're quite a long way inland um as ships got larger the docks couldn't cope and so as Matthew's just said the trade was moved out to the Severn Estuary. Um, What was left behind was a a city that in the 19th century declined somewhat um, compared to the great northern ports like Liverpool Um, and the consequences of that now are that there's a sort of heritage of a, a lot of 18th century and medieval street patterns which weren't redeveloped in the 19th century. So there isn't the 19th century decay that some cities have had to deal with. Um, and in the period after the First World War, Bristol started to prosper again uh, with new industries like aircraft manufacturing, um, chemicals, electrical engineering, um, banking and finance. And they're still quite big employers. 
the problem for the city now in terms of us as cyclists is that it's perceived as a very prosperous city. It has amongst the highest per capita car ownership of any UK city and that is imposed on what is essentially an 18th century street pattern. What do you think explains the strength of the car culture in Bristol? I think it's a wealthy city, that's what explains it and it, it does seem to me in Bristol that car ownership has become politicised to an extent that uh, hardly a day goes by when the uh, local evening paper doesn't print you know, hostile anti-cycling letters you know, about people who've been terrorised so on pavements or spotted cyclists going through red lights. Uh, when there are cars parked on pavements everywhere, cars go through red lights constantly and uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a cycle lane which doesn't have cars parked in it. Um, but any attempt by the council to, to try and curb traffic and car ownership is met with a very powerful, uh, well-organised hostility, which generally defeats any kind of progress. So the things that we've got in terms of cycle lanes and cycle facilities and advanced stop lines and road closures have been won in the teeth of, of tremendous opposition there was a plan to introduce a controlled parking zone uh, in the residential areas around the city centre. We live quite close to the city centre, so we would have been affected. And um, the, the, the verocity of, of um, the, the, the campaign against that, you know, the free parking, became something that became kind of totemic for lots of our neighbours. It was, it was really rather disturbing. Despite those disadvantages, it still definitely has the feel of a cycling city. You do see a lot of people riding around on, on bikes. I mean, it, it's, how would you characterise the Bristol cyclist or the Bristol cyclists? It's probably the better question. Well, there are lots of them, so it's hard to generalise. I've been in Bristol since 1986, and I've always uh, cycled, and I came here as a student, so that was my introduction to cycling in Bristol really a, a kind of beaten up old um, bike uh, which which you'd sort of try and limp around the the city on it's quite hilly so uh, you do get a good workout I think that Bristol is also slightly alternative and so there's a strong sense of slightly when I came in off the <laughs> bath cycle path you know I was hit by a wall of patchouli you know and the yo yoga yeah. classes were yeah. being advertised immediately on my arrival it was, uh, it was just as I expected <laughs> well there is there is some of that but there's also more respectable you know sort of straight laced side to the city um, cycling has really developed a lot in the last uh, 20 years. There's lots of cycling groups uh, that uh, run most of the cycle stores uh, have um, an evening where you can go out on a, on a ride. CTC uh, in Bristol is, is fairly buoyant uh, and have been organising a lot of uh, additional activities uh, at different levels to kind of attract the novice children, um, family cycling 
and that's working to really increase the amount of cycling that, that, that you see around. And Bristol, I think, apart from Edinburgh and London, the only places where there's a, a branch of Cycle Out, the Gay Cycling Club, so runs in Bristol. So we're quite proud of that. Some people like to say that, you know, the cycling community in Bristol is quite anarchic. So uh, um, they, they, they rub along and they like to um, be a bit feisty at times. I think the demonstration of this was when the, there was some suggestion that the Bristol to Bath route might be joined by a bus lane going alongside it to take rapid buses. Um, I think over 10,000 people signed the petition, there were marches, there were all kinds of things. Brought all those kind of different types of cyclists together and then they'll uh, still have a go at each other afterwards. But, but they, uh, they do get along mostly. I'd say the fixed wheel culture, which you notice when you go to London, how ubiquitous that is, has been slow to take off in, in Bristol to, to, the, to the level that it has in somewhere like London and that's partly because of the the geography so the terrain really doesn't lend itself to um, riding fixed a lot it's quite hilly um, and choosing a gear that would uh, get you up the hills and then be comfortable on the on the flats is, uh, is a challenge but but that's coming through after my coffee and chat with Mike and Matthew down at the docks I decided to try out one of Bristol's legendary hills so I got on my bike and rode up to Henley's where I had a meeting with Peter Lippmann, who's Director of Policy at Sustrans, the sustainable transport organisation which is responsible for um, the national cycle routes and lots of other good things involving promoting cycling and walking. Um, he explained a little bit more about the unusual location for our interview. We're at Henley's Lake, which was a quarry until about 80 or 90 years ago. Then they hit a spring and it flooded and uh, eventually the, the landowner sold it to the local lads who were using it for swimming and fishing and it's been a swimming and fishing club ever since. And as you see, an absolutely wonderful haven in the city. All you can really see around you are, are the, the stone walls of, of the old quarry, trees, grass and the water and you wouldn't believe you're in the middle of a city really. We are here up on the top of a hill that I've come up from uh, the bottom of the docks area of Bristol and Bristol is defined by its hills and that must in turn define to a certain extent the cycling in the city. Yes, I think it's off-putting for people who feel less confident or maybe are a bit less fit. There's no doubt about that. Um, when, when you look around the world there's a small correlation between gradient and levels of cycling but it, it's not that significant and, and there are certainly plenty of places on the continent where there are high cycling levels and it's, and it's hilly so I, I, as always these things are about perception more than reality people perceive that it's really hard to cycle up steep hills or long hills if you get a bike that's got reasonable gearing and you're happy to go slowly, I think most people can cycle up. Of course, more and more, we, we also see people using electric bikes and uh, a little electric motor kicking in to help them up the hills. And Bristol is this cycling demonstration city. How did that come about? Bristol City Council are good at writing bids and, and getting funding to do sustainable initiatives. Um, they're, they're, they're not always as good at following through. I think, I think the cycling city 
scheme remains one of enormous potential, but there's no doubt it had quite a rocky beginning. There were, there were local politics involved, and um, it hasn't quite got going yet. But there, there is funding to do something significant. There's, there's a lot of energy in the council from pretty senior people to, to make a real difference, to make it a flagship project. And most importantly, those people are talking about not just doing something while they've got the funding for another two years, but setting in, in path uh, a pattern to go on for the next decade and, and further to really embed cycling in the city as, as, a, as a significant way of getting about. And when you look at places on the continent that have really succeeded these are places that take decades over delivering their strategies you you when you're working against an inertia uh, a status quo which is more and more car trips then you don't just turn it on its head overnight unless you're prepared to do something very dramatic and so what kind of things are they going to be doing to make the change well there, there's quite a lot of attention at the infrastructure level how how do we start having cycle routes that are meaningfully safe and joined up um, and not just really irritating cycle lanes that people park on or stop just when you need them. Um, there's also a lot of attention to the, the marketing side. How do we change the perception of cycling so that it's not seen as something that either only fit young people in Lycra do or people who are failures, you know, the sort of people who can't afford a car do, uh, so that it's seen as something that is is fun and enjoyable and quicker and healthier and all of those things. And I think you do need both of those. You need to reach out to people's hearts and minds as well as to put the infrastructure in place. I think one of the problems on, on cycling promotion in this country has been that people have wanted to do the carrot but not the stick. So they, they want to encourage people to cycle but they're not prepared to actually make it harder or less convenient for people to drive. And Sustrans fully signs up to the principles underlying in the rather anoraki term filtered permeability. In other words, you make it quicker, safer, more convenient, more enjoyable for the sustainable modes, walking, cycling, public transport. And that means that you actually obviously therefore make it a bit harder, a bit less convenient, maybe a bit more expensive to drive. And unless you're prepared to do both, I don't think you'll see the sorts of changes we really need to see. So to take a, a classic example again from the continent, and it's such a shame that we're always looking to the continent for the good examples, but in Groningen, they, they initially had a very simple scheme where you know, you, overnight suddenly you couldn't drive from one area to another area of the city, but you could walk, cycle or use the bus. And lo and behold, you know, that's what people did. So mayor for the day, tomorrow, you know, after a bit of... Uh sunbathing and swimming here all nicely refreshed you've got you've got 12 hours to make the big changes what are those what are those decisions going to be I, i'd want to have had the time to tell people in advance what was going to happen to explain to people that it was going to be done on an experimental basis and we'd be looking at it again to see how it worked because over and over again people completely change their minds when they look back like in in um, oslo when they had their um, congestion charging referendum, people voted against it. They went ahead and did it, and now people really like it. Um, so I'd have warned people, got people warmed up for uh, an overnight transformation of, of the city with filtered permeability principles, just saying, OK, actually, for example, one of the major routes into the city, down White Ladies Road, through the Triangle, down Park Street, well... Uh, the Triangle is going to be a boulevard where people can sit out, uh, have... have 
outdoor cafes, have big trees like the, the, the lovely little instant pocket parks they developed in New York. We're going to do that all the way down there. And I think we'd see disappearing traffic. I think we'd see people loving the space. And I think within months, people would be saying, yeah, we want to keep it like this. Well, there we have it. London to Bristol in three days. Um, it was a really fantastic ride. I was blessed with the kind of weather that you can only dream about usually um, cycle touring in the United Kingdom. It was sunny and uh, warm all of the uh, three days that it took me to do the ride. Actually, I went incredibly slowly. So if you wanted to do um, that ride, you could definitely do it in two days. It wouldn't be a problem at all. And I'll try and um, trace out the route or as much of it as I can remember and stick it up um, on, uh, on the internet. You can visit the Bike Show's website to find that. And I'll also put up a few photographs. So if you fancy following along any or all of that route, yeah, check it out. I mean, I had a fantastic time and it was thanks really to um, the Bike Show listeners who showed me the way. So an enormous thank you to Michael, Dennis, Jonathan, Kiko, Pete, David, Daniel, Kieran and Emily and of course to uh, Mike, Matthew and Peter who showed me a little bit of the uh, cycling culture of the city of Bristol. Now if you're pretty quick with your downloads of the podcast um, the Dunwich Dynamo is coming up this Saturday, the 4th of July. It's the 15th edition of the Dunwich Dynamo. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to make it. I've not been feeling the greatest these days, but I'm on the mend. And um, hopefully we'll be there. Um, it starts um, at 8.30, 9, 9 o'clock start in the evening from the pub on the park in London Fields in Hackney. And um, it's 110 or 115 miles out to the Dunwich coast. It's a very uh, flat and easy route. Uh, there'll be probably be about five or six, seven hundred people doing it. So um, you uh, will be in very good company. And it really is one of the best things to do on a bicycle in London, in the UK, in the world, really. It's, it's a marvel. And um, every time I do it, I am um, I'm, I'm really pleased that I did because it's just um, it's sort of an epic adventure that starts on your own doorstep and um, that is something that I think the bike show is all about so that is all for this special extended podcast only edition of the show I hope you enjoyed it tune in to the show when regular service will be resumed in a compact half hour next week. We'll be talking about the Tour de France with sports journalist Lionel Burney and playwright and director Roland Smith. So tune in to the show next week. Until then, have fun on the Dun Run, ride safely and chapeau.